Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Welcome to this week's episode of the TLS podcast. I'm Fia Linarduzzi, an editor here at the TLS, and Lucy Dallas, our arts editor, is here with me. Hello, Lucy. Hi, Fia. How are you? I'm all right, thank you. I think we could we could start with our almost traditional, very British chat about the weather. Um, <laughs> but shall we shall we skip that and you tell me what you're reading instead? Yes, I tell you what. I I can be absolutely honest with you. I've been reading a sort of scattergun. Uh, had a scattergun approach to reading this week. Uh-huh. And the last work I read, which I read last night, was uh, Asterix and the Great Crossing. Really? Yeah, which I hadn't oh, read before. Wow. It was brought to my attention and I hadn't read that one. I did an event a few years ago about the Asterix comics and it was such a full immersion in the nostalgia of, of youth because I used to sneak away to the library at school because <laughs> they had an amazing collection of Asterix comics yeah. yes yeah yeah oh wonderful so, so that's that's my reading what's yours I've been a bit like you actually I've been kind of darting from one thing to another not really committing um so there's been a bit of Henry Green a bit of Natalia Ginsburg um, some Maria Stepanova, which we're reviewing in this week's paper, in fact, uh, in memory of memory, which is this wonderful, uh, what would you even call it? I suppose it's a biography of her aunt that just branches off in these incredible, surprising directions. Um, so I've been sort of moving between those three. Um, I don't know why I can't seem to commit to one thing in particular. I think it's the kind of the, I don't know, the excitement of spring. <laughs> <laughs> And as usual, as usual, Thea, that's much more serious reading than mine. I'll, I'll try and step it up for next week. All right. Well, that's the challenge. Um, a quick reminder that the TLS subscription offer exclusively for podcast listeners is back. For just £5 or $5 or the equivalent currency, wherever you are, you will receive six issues of the TLS in print and in digital with access to our archives too, including the amazing historical archive, which stretches back to 1902. Go to the-tls.co.uk forward slash pod to sign up. But now, coming up on this week's show, as part of a collaboration with Hay Festival, which starts this week, we asked 20-odd writers, including the novelists John McGregor, Maza Mingiste and Ali Smith, to tell us about a formative encounter for better 
or for worse with the natural world. I'm afraid in one Toad's case, it's definitely for worse. The TLS's own Alice Wadsworth will join us uh, in what turns out to be more confessional than symposium. And we'll review the television adaptation of Nancy Mitford's witty and eventful novel of 1945, The Pursuit of Love, about an eccentric upper-class English family between the wars. And we will hear about a new play by Phoebe Eclair Powell, Harm, about loneliness and social media addiction. But first, to a new biography of D.H. Lawrence by Francis Wilson, reviewed this week by Jerry Kimber. Lawrence, in the canon of 20th century novelists, is, in Wilson's words, the most judged writer of the age. And Wilson is clear that she has come neither to bury him nor to resurrect or rehabilitate him for 21st century readers. That is maybe impossible. Rather, she has come, as the book's title, Burning Man, might suggest, to set him alight, to illuminate him in new and thrilling ways. Jerry Kimber joins us now to tell us more. Hello, Jerry, and thank you for joining us. Hello. Hi, Bea. Um, as you say in your piece, D.H. Lawrence has had uh, a bunch of excellent biographers. Um, at what point, how and how soon did you know you were in for something different here? Almost from the very beginning. The way that um, that she presents her story and what she's going to tell you knew immediately that this was going to be different from anything else. I think within the first two or three pages, she'd made me laugh out loud. And that in itself is unusual in, um, you know, a, a staid biography of, a, of a, a well-known literary figure. And the captivating language that she, that she uses to describe Lawrence, his life, the characters around him, um, everything about it, I knew that I was in very safe hands, but also that I was going to find the story that she was telling different to everything that had gone before. And by the time I reached the end, I knew that, that this was a very special biography. Um, I have to say, I love your description of her as, um, you say, she's a slightly tipsy, indiscreet female <laughs> presence of the overwhelmingly male Lawrence Wake, who says what she really thinks, doesn't care who's listening, satiates our curiosity with reliable gossip, and in so doing tells us more about the writer than we ever thought possible. She sounds like excellent company. <laughs> <laughs> she does. And um, I did wonder if that would be um, edited out, but I'm so glad <laughs> it was kept in because that's just how I felt, you know, that sort of some of the things she says, you draw breath and you think, but you're a Lawrence scholar, you can't say that. But she does say it and it makes absolute sense, you know, about um, The Plume Serpent is a really boring book. And she tells you it's a really boring book and that, um, you know, Lawrence's traits, he was just, you know, so contradictory, not just with, with other people when he was having conversations, but with himself, you know. Um, and one of my favourite, I mean, this is really is the essence of Lawrence, where she writes, he was a modernist with an aching nostalgia for the past, a sexually repressed priest of love and a passionately religious non-believer, as well as a critic of genius who invested in his own worst writing. You know, those contradictions, but that she sort of precisely and so concisely says there in that you know in that short quotation um I think you have to be a very special writer never mind a very special biographer to be able to condense everything you know into those few words 
And um, another thing I was struck by when you say it's so refreshing that she says, oh, this is such a boring book, you know, because yes. often in biographies, it's like, well, you can see the kernels of the work that will come to fruition. <laughs> and if she just says, oh, gosh, this is just really boring. But a thing that I, that I thought was very interesting um, about your review and and I guess about the book is that she says that his novels are not his best work. Yes. Um, and in particular, this wonderful, um, the memoirs of the Foreign Legion by uh, Maurice Magnus, which was only recently republished and which she says is Lawrence's finest, possibly, you know, obviously it's all very personal, isn't it? But that she thinks is Lawrence's finest work. And until very recently, no one, it, unless you were lucky enough to find a copy in a secondhand bookshop or buy it online or something you couldn't really get access to it and when you look at it and read it in depth um, as I did for a review a couple of years ago for the TLS it really is Lawrence at his sparkling best and it's, it's like Lawrence writing a biography Lawrence didn't write biographies but in a way his introduction to, to Maurice Magnus's memoirs show him um, really uh, as a very fine writer indeed and absolutely brilliant at doing that particular job but you know he didn't return to doing anything else like that and carried on with his mostly turgid novels that you know we all I, th I think you'd have to be a real Lawrence fanatic to say that you enjoyed reading all of his novels and short stories because some of them really aren't enjoyable uh, and, and she's honest enough to admit that and once you do that then a new Lawrence comes to the fore the only problem of course is that you still have to contend with Lawrence um, who wasn't very kind to his wife Frida who um, was ridiculous in his um, pontificating of, of very strange ideas and even you know, even with the beautiful poetry, the wonderful introduction to Maurice Magnus's memoirs, those are still hard to come to terms with. So she, I mean, she makes him from the sounds of it. She she makes him uh, very human, more human than his other biographers have, perhaps. And it sounds almost as though uh, she makes him unbearably human in some respects. She does. And again, one of my favourite quotes um, was before um, they went, he, well, he moved to, to Florence for quite some time, when their utter poverty in 1918, where she writes, here between a wood and a railway, they reach the fag end. I mean, even that word, the fag end, it's so Francis Wilson, the fag end of their poverty. Lawrence in shoes without socks was down to one set of clothes, a green and red striped blazer and a pair of grey flannel trousers, because he washed them every night. The sleeves of his blazer and the hems of his trousers had shrunk so that his wrists and ankles protruded. Uh, and again, you know, I mean, obviously other biographers uh, talk of, of, of the poverty of the Lawrences at this period of their lives. But it's just that she, you know, she describes it. She describes the minutiae of that poverty. And in so doing, I think, really brings it alive. Her book, um, I mean, the, the poverty that, that that you've described comes in the period. So it's known as the middle the middle years, basically, which spans from I think it's 1915 to 1925, isn't it? So those those yes. years, I mean, what what was what was going on in that period? It, it was a very intense period. It was, and in those years. Um, she has the, the years 1915 to 19, which were mostly spent in, in England, then Italy 1919 to 1922, and then Paradise 
which wasn't always paradise, um, in America between 1922 and 1925. And as um, anyone who has read or will read the biography will understand, uh, she follows the uh, structure of Dante's Divine Comedy, uh, claiming that it was the way Lawrence structured his own life and that he was steeped in, in, in Dante's story that's very interesting, isn't it? That really, as it's an organising structure, that really surprised me. But then you see the, the subtitle of the book is The Ascent of D.H. Lawrence, and, and it all yes. falls into place very quickly, doesn't it? Yes, it does. And then when you, when you think about it, you think, well, golly, yes, that's absolutely true. Every house Lawrence lived in, from birth to burial, was positioned at a higher spot than the last. He rose from underworld to empyrean. And she, she we all know, I mean... You know, Eliot, Pound, every all those early modernists were so steeped in their Dante um, and their their classical literature as well. But you don't think about Lawrence um, in that in the same way that you think about Eliot and Dante. And yet she makes such a strong case, and she is as at ease with the Divine Comedy as she as she is with all aspects of Lawrence's life. And it just creates these really pleasurable layers. Of, um, of knowledge, of understanding, of communicating Lawrence's story to us, which um, is quite astonishing and, as I said, pleasurable and very rewarding to read. And as you say, it makes a lot of sense when you consider his 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 early influences and his devotion to Shelley. You have a um, you summarise it brilliantly. You say, uh, and so intriguingly, the life of a writer of multiple contradictions from the early twentieth century is told in a tale of imagination and sheer bravura by another writer from the twenty first century, via a path set out by yet another writer from the beginning of the fourteenth century, aided by a nineteenth century romantic poet. <laughs> Yes, and, and that's it. That is how Frances Wilson structures her narrative. And it, it, well, it's, you know, it's very daring. And I guess even when she started it, maybe she had a, you know, a, a soupçon of, of fear that it perhaps might not work. But, you know, she does. And then she's at home with, uh, it's Percy Bysshe Shelley that, that she takes as Lawrence's guide, whereas Dante obviously had Virgil and she chooses Shelley. She's as at home with Shelley as she is with Dante, as she is with Lawrence. Um, in, in terms of the, the, the Dante, that very strong relationship, a thing that I, that I didn't um, formally know at all or even guess at was that Lawrence considered himself that his life was his supreme art. Is that right? Something like that, that he was actually he was conscious in that kind of structuring. Well, that's the claim she makes. I must admit, obviously, prior to this, I wasn't aware of that. And I think it's um, obviously one of the most exciting aspects of the book because she does say, she makes the claim that the connection between Lawrence and Dante has been, uh, until now, had been barely recognised by scholars, which means that obviously somebody at some point had made a vague connection. How how vague, I, I honestly don't know. But um, as you read the biography and... Uh, Obviously, you have. So you know that the, the Dante connection keeps growing and becoming stronger and stronger and is very much a formative part of her entire narrative that you understand. You say, well, of course, of course, this makes sense. Which makes it all all the kind of the more just, I suppose, that, that Francis Wilson 
herself recognizes she says at the at the at the start doesn't she she says that she recognizes no distinction between uh, the life and the art nor between the fiction and the non-fiction that he wrote mm. um, she says burning man is a work of non-fiction which is also a work of imagination so she's really pushing against in the same way as he was the limits of of any genre but in, in her case biography and his um everything Absolutely. That he did, really. yeah and she calls them excess um she will, reads his entire oeuvre, if you like, as exercises, this is her quote, exercises in autofiction, because she says that you cannot distinguish. I mean, there was, there's always been this thing, you know, at university and as a student, you're always told, well, you know, don't read biographical facts into, you know, into novels, who, no matter who they are. But sometimes it's impossible. And with a lot of the modernists, it really is hard not to do. I mean, Mansfield was definitely someone who wrote her entire life into her short stories. And to try and disassociate her life from her stories is impossible. And if you do so, I think you're doing her a disservice. And clearly, Wilson feels the same about Lawrence. Um, Morris Magnus has come up a few times uh, already in the course of our discussion. So um, what was their relationship? Well, I mean, they met in Florence um, alongside Norman Douglas, because if you mention one, it's hard to mention one without the other. And they were two absolutely fascinating characters, both bisexual. Magnus was much more of a, a sort of a, a, a overtly camp character if you like than than Douglas but they were both in Italy at the time when Lawrence was in Italy and for, for a period of time without Frida and he became very friendly with them both and to to a certain extent they sort of didn't direct his life but he was fascinated by both of them now in other biographies of Lawrence they do obviously they are mentioned because you know Lawrence spent many months in their company but they're not accorded huge importance. In Wilson's book, they are, because she sidelines other characters like John Middleton Murray, Aldous Huxley, Catherine Mansfield, Catherine Carswell, all those characters that, that really did spend so much time uh, with Lawrence during his life, but also talking about Lawrence after his death. You see, Mansfield died before him, but certainly Murray, Huxley, Catherine Carswell, They've had their time in the in the spotlight, if you like. These other characters who do sometimes get glossed over, if you like, but they were really formative. They were formative years for Lawrence. They helped him write, in the case of Morris Magnus, uh, the finest piece of work that he ever wrote. So let's bring those characters to the fore. But no, Morris Magnus was um, a very strange character. I found that the episode... He was hiding out in um, the, the wonderful monastery at Monte Cassino. It's very famous for its destruction in the Second World War. And um, Magnus, you know, begged Lawrence to go and visit him, which Lawrence did. And, um, you know, and Lawrence really got a sense of who Magnus really was then. And even though basically Magnus had only invited him there because he needed more money um, and, the, and Lawrence, who never really had any money, was only able to give him small amount um, nevertheless, the talks that they had and then Lawrence's retreat from the monastery and back to um, to Florence really sort of summed up and made him understand Magnus in a way that he, I think he hadn't done before. I suppose with these men in particular, it's it's the kind of jumping off point for to discuss one of the ways in which Lawrence was 
burning, you know, the, the kind of the frustration of being able to yes. be open about and, and satisfy his own um, subversive yes. desires. Yes, exactly. Um, and for him to mention that he did, you know, he he did have um, an ambition perhaps to be bisexual, which as far as we're aware was never fulfilled, but that he was honest enough to admit that at other times, of course, because this was the contrary nature of, of, of Lawrence. Um, he hated all homosexuals. This is what he, he claimed. He hated Florence because it was a city full of homosexuals. But at the same time, you know, admitting to Morris Magnus that, you know, he sort of half admired him. The, these contradictions, which again, you know, she does, uh, Francis Wilson doesn't shirk from revealing to us. And even though, you know, there are aspects of Lawrence's character that are very, very hard for us to come to terms with, with our own sensibilities today, it's these contradictions that do make him all the more human in a way. And, um, you know, aside from the wife beating and the violence, endearing, because, you know, we've all, we, we all have our contrary natures, don't, don't we, where we, Sometimes we think one thing, then we think another, and we're sort of undecided or we sit on the fence. Um, Lawrence could be so bombastic about certain things, but you know, the next day he was bombastic in in the opposite in the opposite sense. You never really knew where you stood with him. One minute um, being utterly vile, the next sitting and delicately trimming a hat. Yes, exactly. And he was such a feminine man um, for the time. I mean, you know, Mansfield once wrote a letter, she railed against uh, Murray, who had a group of chums around for a lunch, and Mansfield, who wanted to be sat having that conversation and smoking her Russian cigarettes, was instead in the kitchen, which was not her natural place, um, having to sort of somehow put together a scratch meal because they couldn't afford a cook. Uh, this was in the early days of their relationship. But Lawrence did all the, Frida couldn't cook. I mean, Lawrence did all the cooking. Lawrence did the sewing. He did all the cleaning. He wasn't averse to getting down on his hands and knees when he was still well enough uh, and mopping floors and doing, he did everything. Um, and in that sense was a really very modern man for the time. It wasn't something that, that that Murray did. He's such a fascinating, fascinating character. Finally, um, I suppose we know, I mean, there's no rehabilitation agenda in this book, as we said, and as you point None out, at all. he is now None thoroughly out of fashion. The very idea of rehabilitating him in light of everything that we've said is <laughs> is is kind of absurd. But um, did you did you come out of this feeling like you you wanted to go back and read him um, and that if you were to do that, you might read him differently and fruitfully so? Uh, for me personally, no, because I've always had a soft spot for Lawrence because of Catherine Mansfield. Towards the end of her life, she, you know, having had a really a period where she hated him because he had been viciously cruel to her, um, she, she started to sort of think more fondly of the time that they had spent together and said, you know, I'm a, Lawrence and I are unthinkably alike. Towards the end of her life, she, want, you know, she made sure that he was, uh, that she wrote in her will that he was to be given one of her books. Um, and that she said, you know, the sunnier side of Lawrence, the Lawrence, the fun Lawrence that she remembered was meant a, an awful lot to her. And that has always stayed with me. And so, I don't, he doesn't need to be rehabilitated as far as I'm concerned. Um, and as far as diehard Laurentians are concerned, I don't know how far they will want to know about the fact that 
Lawrence's novels aren't all that good because um, all that Lawrence isn't much read anymore because I'm sure that when my review comes out, there will be letters or whatever saying, well, no, we still have him on our university syllabus and we still do this and we still do that. You know, he's far from being in the in the doldrums from a reputation point of view. But I think Wilson is right. I think, you know, compared to all the other modernists and the writers of his time, he hasn't been accorded the importance of uh, other writers that he knew. And goodness me, he didn't really know everyone, didn't he? (laughs) But um, I think that her book will go a great, a long way to rehabilitating him as as a, a, a character with depth, with feeling, with understanding, who whose rage is perhaps you have to sort of put aside if you can. And if anyone has or will ever get to the depths of Lawrence, I think this book has done it. And to rehabilitate him as a a human being um, with many faults, as we all have, um, who nevertheless is deserving of our attention and our praise, if you like, for... Uh, a lot of the things that he did write from a creative point of view that weren't necessarily his novels. And I think for that, we can only thank her. Well, Jerry Kimber, thank you too um, for joining us today. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much. Still to come on the show, writers including Lisa McInerney and Tamima Annam think back to formative experiences in the natural world. And we'll canter through this week's Arts Pages, where we'll hear about a new play at London's Bush Theatre, as well as a bold adaptation of Nancy Mitford's The Pursuit of Love. And if you've enjoyed what we've discussed so far this week, let me remind you that you can subscribe to this podcast for free wherever you normally get your podcasts, and you'll never miss an episode. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information, 
information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome back to the TLS podcast. You may have heard us mention the Hay Festival recently, not least as we're partnering with them this year and it opened this week. Well, we wanted to ask some of the writers at Hay a question and make a symposium of their responses. We asked them to tell us about a formative experience with nature, a nice open-ended question, which was in fact devised by Thea, who was being very modest about all this. And we got an extraordinary range of answers. The writers told us about specifics, the Carpenter Bee Olympics, the dangers of cane toads, the joy of monsoon season with cockroaches on the walls, but also about epiphanies, deep and lasting emotions, fear, regret, love and injustice. We're going to look at these answers now, and we have our own Alice Wadsworth joining us to talk through them. But um, before we talk to Alice, I'm going to talk to Thea, because Thea, this was your baby, really, this was your project. Did you know what to expect when you sent out the answers, or was it a surprise to you what you got? Um, well, I knew we'd get a range of experiences and impressions because among the people I asked are uh, scientists and historians and novelists. So, I mean, to give you a sense of that, even in just the first two, uh, we go from Tanima Anam, uh, the author most recently of the novel The Startup Wife, which is about sexism and tech and ambition. And, and she starts with her admission that nature terrifies her partly it turns out because she likes to know that a toilet is available uh, should should she need one um, and she proceeds from there to tell us about how um, she says one time on a dare I ignored my fears and jumped into the ladies pond in Hampstead Heath it went exactly as I'd predicted I flailed about convinced I was about to drown tried to grip a boy only to find it covered in pond slime then gasped my way back to shore my lungs about to explode so she has a very um shall we say, healthy respect for nature. Uh, she says, I haven't become an all-seasons pond swimmer, but I understand the allure now, because even though I am afraid, I know deep in my indoor plumbing-loving bones that nature is powerful. And then her contribution is immediately followed, because we proceed alphabetically in, mm-hmm. I suppose, a typical human attempt to impose order on wildness. Um, but so her contribution is followed by Kehinde Andrews, Uh, the activist and professor of black studies, who says, my family is from the Caribbean, so I grew up hearing all about hurricanes, tropical storms and floods. The dark side to the tropical paradise is seen when the full force of nature batters the islands. Uh, And as climate change intensifies, he points out, we will see more extreme weather events with over the next 30 years, as many as uh, one billion climate refugees predicted. And so at the heart of his contribution is this idea 
that nature is punishing the world for, uh, in his words, damage caused to the earth by a global economic system based on exploitation. Nature, famously cruel, is not, uh, he observes, balanced in her revenge. The impact, he says, is felt most in regions whose people have known the same exploitation. My family is in the Caribbean because of transatlantic slavery, he says, and now it is millions of black and brown people who are being displaced again, forced to flee. And so I read you those two just to give you a sense of this zooming in and out from the extremely personal, sometimes you know, gentle, funny, uh, sad to these wider global perspectives and that runs through the whole symposium really yeah I thought it was it was striking because what, what we what you didn't get was people saying oh I remember when I was seven and I looked at a worm and I thought isn't everything brilliant they weren't all nice they weren't all as you say gentle they weren't all even positive they were quite strong reactions, and as you and, and as you say, some of them are about climate change and and Kehinde Andrews and the, the unequal effects of climate change. Let me ask Alice um, what um, she thought about them. Thanks for coming, Alice. First of all, hello. I haven't said hello. Hi. Thanks for having me. <laughs> what did you What did you think about the range of answers we got? Yeah, it was really interesting because there was looking into some really beautiful almost forest bathing parts of nature like um in olivia lang's piece kind of looking at returning to the woods where they were young and unfrightened um and also in en liang kong's piece uh looking at kind of my neighbor totoro's version of the, the woods and also for an urban dweller which talks about how you feel intensified um over the past year but then the kind of the woods like make you re-see things but then yeah there's the disturbing aspects that you can see through nature a bit better like Damon Gugget's uh, contribution is kind of a beautiful short story really looking at the cruel treatment or like callous treatment maybe of this duck but then looking at this, the way the child watches it and so they talk about something in the child spreads its wings too he's never felt so powerful and so ashamed 50 years later, remembering what he did, the shame still remains. So that's seeing the cruelty through nature, I suppose. Well, it's it wasn't the cruelty of nature or the, the cruelty in that sense was came from, from the human, didn't it? But uh, there's also the, the idea human about... Human is, the part, is exactly. part of nature. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, yeah. and that's, that's a point that John McGregor makes very well, doesn't he? Yeah. Yeah, I was going to... Yes, he says that, doesn't he? That I feel that he he's, he's also a forest bather, I think, isn't he, Alice, John McGregor? Because yeah. he says... Yeah. He's terrified of the lack of trees in Antarctica. Um, yeah, because he clearly, for him, trees are the thing where he feels sort of part of everything. And I think quite a lot of them seemed to share, uh, seemed to want to be closer to nature. I mean, you know, I'm, I, as I say, I'm making the artificial divide. Distinction. If, yeah, just, let's assume that we are not nature, even though we are. They wanted to be closer or, or maybe there was a realisation or even a regret that they weren't. Do you think that? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I'm um, thinking now of Sonia Falero's piece, talking about the, the snake or the fear of nature kind of at their aunt and uncle's house. Um, when they, they say that it was here, I realized that nature had desires of its own and that these desires could be a danger to me and seeing a snake kind of under the bed. And I think, yeah, there's that fear of our interaction with nature. Like, are we, I suppose, us thinking of ourselves distinct from it in some way? 
um, but that doesn't make it as invulnerable to it. <laughs> yeah, Thea, did you think that it was that, that there was regret about not being closer or not really? There, there, well, there, there was there certainly in, um, I'm thinking actually a much gentler uh, look at that than Sonia Faleiro's, which is really, um, it really puts a fear in you, doesn't it? Because, you know, she's, her piece is in, in she's in Goa. So these are serious snakes, not just, you know, your British grass snake. <laughs> but um, is, that, is that the one where she finds, she finds the a shell. broken, yes, she finds yes. a shell. And then her auntie comes to sort it out and says, don't worry, the mother probably won't return. That <laughs> yeah. probably would not be enough exactly. for me, I don't think. So imagine trying to sleep after that. But um, no, I mean, in terms of regret, and I, I suppose, um, a desire to make up for lost time for having allowed that distinction, that false, as you say, false distinction between man and the natural world uh, to, to, to be a factor in her life for too long. Uh, it makes me think of Sanam Meyer's contribution, uh, which is very much in that vein. She's making up for lost time now. So Meyer, um, she's, a, she's a, a Pakistani writer um, based in Karachi. And she begins by saying, I didn't have an affinity for nature, I thought. Give me people watching on the streets over any rural idyll. I grew up in Karachi, a city where parks, the few whose land has not been stolen and built on and manicured and gated. Um, but then there's this moment, and this is obviously you alluded to this, Alice, uh, how people's perception or people's need uh, for nature has 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 changed um, or been intensified over the period of lockdown. And so Sanam uh, writes about how... Um, during lockdown with her city in lockdown, but the city in which another player in this story lives not being in lockdown yet. Every morning she rolls over, reaches for her phone to check for photographs of flowers that arrived in messages while she was sleeping. So her contribution is actually a beautiful love story. And it's about how nature becomes a player in a very human story. And that in a way, it's not a million miles away from um, from the impulse described in Maza Mengiste's contribution, which you mentioned, Lucy. So yeah, Maza Mengiste talks about um, wall paintings um, just outside Hargisa in Somaliland, some of the oldest in the Horn of Africa. It says they depict cattle, giraffes, even a domesticated dog. And there's one human figure clothed in a splendid white shirt with arms flung wide as if caught in a moment of exuberance. And Mazmangisti says, I've, I've thought of this during the pandemic, I've thought of this moment often, reminded of the debt we owe to those who recognised the world's natural beauty and insisted that we stop and look. So that's that's a, a strong encounter with nature, but but it's a representation. The other one is is the one that Alice mentioned, Alice, about Enliang Kong's talking about my neighbour Totoro, because that's a that's a film, isn't it, about a, about a fictional creature in the woods? Yeah, so um, in Enliang Kong's piece, they look at, yeah, My Neighbor, my neighbor Totoro, which is a film that looks at two girls who are with their um, mother who's recovering from a serious illness and they find this escape in the woods with this beautiful giant um, kind of cartoon monster, but not very scary monster called Totoro, who's very sleepy and very sweet and gives them seeds um, and flies them around in the air. <laughs> and it's there's beautiful, I mean, there's, there's a bit of plot, isn't there? Their mum's in hospital and they, they're they worried about her. Mm. She's sort of nearby um, recovering. And I think Totoro, doesn't he fly them once to see her in a sort of bus made of a cat? It's all pretty... It's an out there animation. It is. <laughs> but it, but is, he, is he a sort of pan-type figure? 
not even. He's just a lovely big fella. <laughs> but not steady. Like, he's just very big and round. Uh... We're not explaining it very well. It's quite difficult to explain. But there are periods where nothing, yeah, nothing much happens. They walk, this and Leon Kong says this, they walk through the long grass and there's wildflowers and maybe some butterflies. And there's a beautiful bit when they're waiting uh, for a bus in the rain. And the poor girls are absolutely getting completely soaked and it's dark. And then Totoro sort of appears next to them and he's got some huge leaf as an umbrella, which he sort of holds over them. And then actually the rain becomes rather lovely and bearable. And it, it seems to encourage um, not being frightened of nature and what happens, including dark and the rain. Um, and I think it was, I think Elian Kong was saying, because in the, in the lockdown, the, the person who drew Totoro did a video of how to draw Totoro to try and kind of cheer cheer up kids and give them something to do, which just sort of caught everyone's imagination. Well, because kid, kids specifically um, in, in cities who are sort of trapped inside because of lockdown, this became their way of engaging with the natural world. Yeah, yeah, I think so. And it's that's what I mean. It's interesting. That's many layers away from, as I it say, is, you know, being it? out in a field, but it's still a strong impulse and and a recognition of of beauty recognition yeah that's the word <laughs> i was just looking out the window i had no idea i said anything weird yes and it's um a, a recognition of a strong impulse and and of beauty um and i've got another question for both of you this is a horrible unfair question do you have favorite answers that you would like to pick out I think that's a wonderful question because <laughs> I've Thank got you. loads. <laughs> There's, um, I love Desiree Baptiste's contribution um, in part because, I mean, it's quite horrible in, in a way because it, it, it's about the, the murder of, uh, of a toad and then unconnectedly, or is it the death of uh, a Doberman dog? Uh, it is, it's one of the bleaker later. ones there. It is one of the bleaker but I'm grateful for it, for its introduction to the Sanskrit term Manduka, the proverbial frog in a well, because Desiree Baptiste says the, the Kapoor we murdered bore no relation to what happened to Rex, Rex being the Doberman. But like the Sanskrit Manduka, a proverbial frog in a well, my horizons would be restricted if I didn't consider the possibility. And I consider it still far beyond the horizon of my Trinidad childhood. So, um, some you know not long after these kids experiment with this poor toad by by sprinkling salt on him not understanding that it would kill him in their defense uh, they give him a ceremonial burial complete with the lord's prayer they feel the remorse and then some saturdays later the the neighborhood dog mouths a bufo marinus which is a cane toad it's a highly highly poisonous toad um and i suppose Yes, it is. It is one of the bleaker ones. I will give you that and I'm sorry for it. But I suppose what I appreciate about it is, is this thing of looking for narrative logic. You know, we're looking for some higher sense of cause and effect and reason or some sort of almost divine justice in the world and how we sort of bring nature into that. We see it, we read it in that way. Yeah. How about you, Alice? Do you have a favourite one? I do. I also wanted to add the kind of insignificance before nature with Clifford Thompson's as well. Oh, that was mine, Clifford Thompson. <laughs> no, that's okay. I agree with you. Yeah, go on, tell us about it. Uh, well, so he's with his 
wife and daughters in Iceland um, and finds himself uh, before the landscape. And he describes feeling microscopic before this gash in the flesh of a giant, um, a great crack in the planet, and how it reminds him of kind of quite simple things that we forget, just we're on a planet, the earth has cracks in it um, because it's a physical place and none of us will ever see the entire world, this is now quoting, and must picture in our heads the vast portions we cannot see. Our heads exist in the world, not the world in our heads. Which I thought was quite a beautiful way of yeah, describing that insignificance before nature and how that makes you think beyond yourself uh, in so many ways. Yes, I thought that was absolutely brilliant because it's because it's very simple. Yeah. But actually it's a very powerful thing to say that we uh, yeah, our heads are in the world, it's not the world in our heads. Therefore, we're part of it, you know, it all has consequences, all of all of those things. I thought that was um I thought that was really wonderful. And we must remember that on the website we have even more answers. We were constrained by space in the paper, but we're not online, so do go and have a look at those. They are um, really wonderful and thought-provoking. Uh, we're also going to have a look at the rest of the paper, and specifically the arts pages, since both Alice and I have got pieces in this week. Uh, I'm not going to ask myself questions, that would be weird, so let's talk to Alice. Um, Alice, what did you review and uh, how was it? I was really lucky to review Harm at the Bush Theatre, and it was it was brilliant. It was very cathartic um, because it's quite intense. It's a story about someone who has a, a lot of problems with social media, kind of stemming from anxiety and depression and starts to become quite obsessed with the life of an influencer that they happen to meet when selling them a house. But it was, it was actually filmed and shown during lockdown, but I feel it was something that was really important to see in the theater because it's so much about um, cutting through that the insensitive screen time way of seeing things where we're all just kind of consumers and watchers and voyeurs to being, you know, in the physical experience of seeing someone on stage. I mean, as you can tell, I guess I was just really excited to be in a theater <laughs> since before lockdown. <laughs> I was going to ask that because that is, I think that's the first live theatre we've reviewed for over a year, and the first one you've been to, isn't it? Did it was it was it lovely to have an audience around you? It was so nice. I mean, everyone when they welcomed everyone back to the Bush Theatre because it's also the first one there since closing down. Uh, everyone was clapping, and <laughs> I think there was a, a general energy of people feeling really privileged to be able to be in a room and see theatre. It's a new play, isn't it? It's a debut play, I think. Um, and it sounds like it has a point, almost a moral. Did it manage to avoid a kind of preachy, didactic tone? I think because uh, the writing, um, it's Phoebe Claire Powell's writing, is very uh, cutting and witty. Like our, our main protagonist, who remains unnamed, um, is really incisive in her put-downs of everyone around her and their their consumerism even though she is also very affected by kind of want and consumerism online like she buys some lululemon leggings that she absolutely can't afford and when the shopkeeper looks at her funny she has to buy two pairs just to show that she can um whereas yeah she's kind of quite cutting in going through even just the items in people's houses that she sees for example this influencer online of her baby blue arga that's untouched or her free pizza stove <laughs> so I think because she is so critical and so cynical it 
makes it a bit easier. It doesn't feel like you're going through a journey where someone's saying, and this is what I learned, and this is the uh, conclusion, this is what will fix it. Like there aren't really any easy fixes. It's more staying with someone at a point where their mental health is deteriorating and asking really uh, how social media encourages that. There we go. I sent you to a fun evening of theatre. <laughs> no, not maybe not completely fun, but but um, worth going. Very worth going. Like brilliant. Like yeah, extremely funny and very cathartic. A bit shocking. Um, now, Lucy, you may not want to ask yourself questions, but I want to ask you questions. Um, <laughs> you are um, you're a big fan of the novel, The Pursuit of Love, aren't you? So were you were you a bit worried about the adaptation? Did you approach it with caution? Absolutely. I was worried. Yeah. In fact, I almost wasn't going to watch it. Um, and then someone, I have to say, I have to make it clear that I did not suggest myself for reviewing it. Somebody else, somebody else suggested it to me. Um, but then actually I was delighted to watch it. But yeah, I was worried about it because it's a, it's, it's a very difficult thing to do. It's a very difficult thing to translate uh, onto the screen, I would have thought. What, what do you think the main challenges of adapting Nancy Mitford are? I think it's partly that challenge of the tone, which is very difficult to get right um, because it has to be funny and it has to be light, but it also has to be real. It's not arch or knowing. Um, you, you have to care about what's happening to the people and there are undertones, at least sometimes more, of of real sadness and mm. um, and real feeling, and but the, but p- part of the reason they they did it was was that old um, stand by the voiceover, and actually that's fine to do it because the the novel is 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 um, narrated by the cousin of the main character. The cousin is called Fanny, and she's kind of slightly in the background, and she's a, a good sensible girl, and the main character is Linda. Um, so actually, because the novel talks about Linda and, and 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 has Fanny's voice throughout it then you can you can quite legitimately have Fanny as the voiceover explaining things mm. so then you, you you kept it kept a lot of the uh kept a lot of the original a lot of the dialogue whilst mm. being quite um stylish and clever with uh, some of the visuals and the music and things like that and um Lily James is Linda isn't she so is she Linda in the book is the kind of the the beating heart of it all isn't she and does that come across uh with all of the energy that you would expect it to yeah I think it does it's really nice she just Linda is very she's very alive she's very affectionate she's impetuous she's she's a kind of bright star in the room and and Lily James feels like that I'm not you see and I realize now now when I'm talking about it I'm not making it sound fun at all it's really good it's really good fun. It looks and it looks very beautiful, and and it does have it has a lot of bittersweet stuff in there and some quite important stuff, but it's quite joyful to watch, which I think mm. is the right uh, the right tone. My only <laughs> bugbear, which I didn't really, it's not my only, not my only point, but everyone because it's TV, just everyone in it is basically really beautiful. <laughs> so, <laughs> so because Linda is the great beauty, but it's they're all really beautiful it was like well I was like well that he's too good looking she's too good looking they're too good looking but that's tv and also you know that doesn't hurt for a Sunday night to have every all these these beautiful people um, <laughs> I suppose not yeah not too um, bad. I mean it's, it's the first in a trilogy uh this novel isn't it love in a cold climate comes next I think and 
is it don't tell alfred is the last one do we i mean do we know if the series is going to continue through those or i don't know it's a pretty loose trilogy actually and the the some of the same characters come up but the focus is very different and the pursuit of love is i feel like is is the sort of main one and the one that stood up mm. and the, one of the and one of the nice things about it um which i said in the review as well is that it's kept some of the the actual fun and sort of weirdness of the Mitford family life, because some of that was was taken from her life, but it has managed to, it doesn't have to reproduce the less fun moments, i.e. that at least, at least two of the family were very fervent, very public Nazis. Mm, and then, and yeah, there is that, there's that whole, <laughs> so this doesn't have to deal with it. Everyone's on, you know, when they go to war, everyone's, everyone's, against Hitler, you know, it, it doesn't have to deal with the incredibly um, extreme politics that divided the actual Mitford family. Hmm. Uh, so I don't know if there's, I don't know if there's going to be any others. I would, I would watch with interest, but the pursuit of love is, works pretty well as a standalone, to be honest. Yeah. Fun and weirdness. Um, well, that is all the fun and weirdness we have time for this week. Um, our thanks go to Jerry Kimber and Alice Wadsworth. Thank you for listening to this episode of the TLS podcast produced by Lee Meyer. We'll be back next week, but for now from Lucy Dallas and from me, goodbye. sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusion Supply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.